Welcome to Top of Mind, the show where we talk to real estate industry insiders and experts about the biggest trends impacting the market today. Enjoy the show. Mike Simonson here. Thanks for joining me today. Welcome to the Top of Mind podcast. This is where I talk to the smartest leaders, thinkers, and doers in the real estate industry. For a few years now, we've been sharing the latest market data every week in our weekly video series. With the new Top of Mind podcast, we're looking to add some more context to the discussion about what's happening in the market from the leaders in the industry. And every week, Altos Research tracks every home for sale in the country, all the pricing, the supply and demand, all the changes in that data, and we make it available to you before you see it in the traditional channels. People desperately need to know what's happening in the housing market right now. The market was so crazy and is now totally crazy in the opposite direction. The landscape has changed so dramatically. So they need you to communicate about this market to them. They need you to be the expert. So go to altosresearch.com for a free consultation on how you can use the market data in your business. So without further ado, I am happy to introduce my guest today, Rick Palacios Jr. Rick is the Director of Research and Managing Principal at John Burns Real Estate Consulting, where he oversees all the research pertaining to the U.S. economy, for sale housing, and the rental market. He's also had stints at Morgan Stanley and the Milken Institute. Milken is such a cool organization. I'm interested in maybe hearing a little bit about that today. Yeah. Rick's got a ton of expertise in residential real estate, economic research, and is actually a prolific publisher of data on the housing market, which many people rely on, including me. So I'm thrilled to get a chance to talk to you today, Rick. Welcome. Thanks, Mike. I will reciprocate that big fan of the content you put out there. I try to catch your weekly updates. So it's nice to join you. Nice to join a fellow housing geek because I think we're both, we would both label ourselves housing geeks. That is true. And it's also, it's a really great place to start the conversation. How did you find yourself here as a housing geek? <laughs> How did you get here? Yeah, it was a bit of a long and winding path. You mentioned milk, and, and I'll give you a little bit of kind of some backdrop there. So try to frame what I've been doing over the last 20 years or so in kind of a backdrop of things that were going on in the world too. Because I think for me, there were some pretty pivotal points in time where you come to this like fork in the road or divide in the road and you're like, oh, wait, I'm not going to do that. Now I'm going to go do this. And so for me, I mean, rewind the clock all the way back to undergrad. I went to undergrad early 2000s. So I graduated into a recession, lucky me. I did the same thing later after graduate school, which I'll get to, but in undergrad, it, it was, you had the, the dot-com recession, you had 9-11, that was my, I think that was my junior year. And so for me, I was kind of on the political science, international relations, macro track, and I was going to go to law school, that was what I was planning on doing, and 9-11 happened, and for me, it was very... I mean, I remember I had a professor coming in the next day and he had somebody that was very close to him that was on a flight from LA that went to one of the towers. And it was just, it was very much for me, this kind of turning point where I said, okay, I've got this background in international affairs. Maybe I don't go to law school. Maybe I focus more on policy. And so when I got to my senior year, that was actually the path that I was going to go on. And so I said yes to, to UCLA. They had a, a good policy program and I was going to go that path, focus on foreign policy and then kind of venture out to DC and see if I could get my foot in the door with some sort something related to the intelligence industry. 
And that was kind of the path. But at the same time, I've always been kind of a fan of creating optionality in your life, no matter what you're doing. And so same time I was applying to grad school, I was applying to different jobs. So I'm like, you know, I wanted to just be able to weigh this. Ended up getting a job at a local kind of boutique investment bank. And I said, okay, well, I, I can always go back to grad school. This would be my first real job other than like, you know, paper out, blockbuster video, Best Buy, working in construction. Because these are all things I did like in high school, junior high. And so I went down that path. And so that's like, oh, four, oh, five. And as you know, peak time for housing, residential, just getting hot. And we did a lot of work across a lot of sectors, but it was interesting because housing and real estate always tended to find its way into a lot of the deals that we were working on. And so I said, this is re a really interesting industry that I had never really spent a ton of time on. So I was like, I wonder if there's a way for me to do this as a living. And so lo and behold, John Burns, the firm I met, he started his firm in 2000 and it was you know right in my backyard. So I said, oh, let me apply there. End up getting a, an analyst role there. And so I'm loving it. I'm doing that. It is like peak froth times with subprime and countrywide and everything. And I'm doing that up until about, I think it's like 2008. And I knew I always wanted to go back to grad school, but now I was on the path of, gosh, I really love economics. I, I really love real estate and finance. And so I went, I ended up going to grad school out in London, doing a master's in real estate, econ and finance and loved that. Graduated, like I said, out of grad school into the GFC. And fortunate enough, I actually had a job lined up before I graduated at the Milken Institute, like you just said. So I, I came back to the States, went to Milken, a fantastic experience. And they, the group that I was in there was all housing, all mortgage. And we were basically trying to figure out, hey, what the hell is going to happen here with the GSEs? With the, with the structure of the mortgage market. So it, it was a great experience. Ended up actually participating in, we, we ended up publishing a book and I worked a lot on that book and, the, and kind of the outline for it on the history of housing finance. I mean, you're going back like centuries and centuries. So all housing, did that for about a couple of years, ended up talking to at that point in time, our director of research here, John Burns, found my way back to the firm, did that for a couple of years. And then I always wanted to be in New York at some point in my career. And so you have these kind of random moments in your day where you're like, oh, let me see if there's anything out there. And just on a whim, applied to a job at Morgan Stanley because they were not covering home builders at the time. And from the first point I started talking to them until when I had an offer, it was probably like three weeks. Mm -hmm. And so then I moved to New York there for about a year just about to launch our coverage on home builders. And John calls me, John Burns. And he's like, Hey, I'd really like for you to come back and be our director of research. And that was again, the kind of point in time dividing the road. It was like, man, do I stay in New York or do I go back? Obviously I ended up coming back and here we are today and I've been loving it. And we're doing tons of amazing things that I think we can get into, but kind of a, an interesting arc over the last 20 years or so from what I've been doing. For sure. That's really great. That's, that is more, it has to, to be confessed that it's more intentional than I was when <laughs> getting here to this point, but that's great. That's a great arc. And you kept getting pulled back to John Burns. Tell, talk to us about John Burns. And I think a fair number of people know John Burns, but maybe not, you know, about like about the organization and who your major clients are. Yeah. So we, like I mentioned, we've been around for now about 20 years or so. And 
The way I like to describe the firm is our client base is really anyone and everyone, both on the industry side, as well as on the investment side, that is trying to figure out what the heck is going on in the housing market. And so it is, it really touches the whole ecosystem. And I think about it from the ground up, it's land developers, it's home builders, clearly, all the groups that manufacture, distribute, sell, retail, the, all the products that go into the home, think about foundation up to the roof. A lot of those groups are clients of ours. You think about the rental space, single family rental operators, build to rent operators, apartment developers, all the groups that are now trying to change the way that housing is purchased, financed, transacted, iBuyers. I think that probably hits most of the groups. So that's really the industry side. Fix and flippers I'd put in there too. And then you flip over to the investment side of that conversation and it's traditional banks, lenders across the board, private equity. So that you kind of get into now institutional investors, private equity, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, hedge funds. So my day is fun because it, it changes every single day, every single day. But one of my, the best, one of the best directional signals for me as an analyst is what are the questions in my inbox? And if I start to get this kind of consistent theme of things that I'm getting asked, it's usually a pretty good signal that, okay, this is something that if we're not already trying to dig here, we got to go and figure this out. So that, that that's one of my, you know, I love the diversity of clients that we have. Got it. And so in your case, it's really about like solving specific questions as they come up. Yeah. So there's the custom stuff and the, Hey, let's go figure that out. That happens all the time. And then the way that we engage with our clients is it's really on two fronts. There's the research side, which is the side that I head up. And so for all those different client types, we have reports that uh, the cadence can be monthly. It can be quarterly yeah. during the peak spring selling season for home builders, which is critical time. We do a twice a month check-in and survey builders across the country to kind of give our clients like, Hey, really important time. You got to know what's going on even more frequently than usual. So that's the research side, a ton of survey work, which that's probably my favorite part of it too, picking up the signal you're getting through all the comments. And then on the consulting side, for all those same type of clients, we've got consultants scattered across the country doing bespoke assignments for all of them. And, and the firm as a whole is about 130 people altogether scattered all across the U.S. Got it. Oh, wow. I didn't realize there's so many. That's that's terrific. Yeah. And the survey, the survey stuff is actually something I'm interested in because at Altos, you know, we're doing a bunch of data, but we don't do it via survey, right? And so you get a different perspective when you're serving. And in fact, you guys just, did you just do a, an October survey? Is that a builder survey that you've just done? Yeah. So I should say all of the surveys are my favorite survey, but <laughs> honestly, the builder survey is my favorite because I, I, I really just love the, the conversations, the data, and it's super, super topical too for consumers. And so that, that survey we've been doing for 14 years or so. It's a really good sample size of about 20% of all new home sales. It's about 400 home builders of large scale across the country we're surveying every single month. And so the month ends and within two or three business days, we turn around a report telling our clients exactly, hey, here's what just happened. And so I think what, yeah, so what you're referring to is our most recent version of that, which was for October. So we told our clients, I think it was like probably the third or fourth of, October, of November, 
what happened in October. And it wasn't all that great. Not a shocker. Yeah. So, so the, like, everything is nuts. What do we learn from about the home builders from the home builders in October? Like, like, what are the big takeaways? Yeah, I think everyone expected it to be bad. This was really the first month of 7% ish mortgage rates for the duration of the month almost. But I don't think, and I, I like to always say that the, the commentary, the color ends up leading the data. The data was bad. The color of the commentary was even worse. And I think that what that signals to us is that it's going to be a pretty rough winter as we start to get into 2023. And some of the stats, I mean, we track pricing, cancellation rates, sales, starts, expectations, all the things that really you go through and you check off a list. Yeah, that's important. That's important. That's important. Cancellation rates shot up to 26% nationally. That is the highest that we have seen this cycle. They were 20% in September. So that was a, a meaningful pop in cancellation rates. And if you follow the builders, DR Horton just reported today as we're talking on the 9th, and they said their cancellation rate for the quarter was 32%. That didn't even factor in October yet. So this is October data. So the October data was pretty rough nationally. And so that's, that is 26% of the contracts that they have fall out of contract. Is that what yeah, that so is? Like it's a percentage of gross orders. Yeah. Yeah. Is a way to think about it. And so those, the figures that a lot of builders are reporting right now, I mean, we're getting close to levels that we saw during the height of 06, 07, which obviously was not all that great for yeah. housing. And so that's a national number, that 26%. And if you, it's different across the country. If you go to the Southwest, if you go to Texas, I think Southwest was like a 45% cancellation rate and Texas was 39%. So those are really rough. Southwest is like Vegas and Phoenix. It's Vegas and Phoenix. It's yeah. Vegas and Phoenix. Yeah. And so 45% of the orders are being canceled. And so that is, so if it's 45% two, two months in a row, is that like we've got a thousand orders and now we've got. 550 and now we've got 260 is that like the yeah well it's the denominator is that month's orders uh, that is, month's orders so yeah. it didn't make so, it it didn't make it a month or like it went in we're negotiating we have an order and then it so it's it, and it's important too because again as housing data geeks you see the census numbers that will come out for new home sales and they don't really reflect that Right. They don't really re reflect those cancellations rolling through. And so in a lot of ways, when you see those numbers, you almost have to go in haircut immediately because we know what's happening with cancellation rates. And it, it was across the board. You had, I think sales were down about 50%. Starts were down 50%. They were basically matching each other. Traffic, which is a great leading indicator, lowest that we've seen since call it the March freeze in 2020, when everyone thought the world was going to end and nobody would be able to sell a house. So the traffic's already down to those levels. And the pricing stats are moving really fast to the downside. Right. And so there's a couple of ways of thinking about that. So there's the year over year number. So we ask builders, well, what are prices up here? And so if you rewound the clock back to February through May, they were up 20% year over year. This is nationally. October, they were only up 8% year over year. And I say that because it's important not to get lost in the year over year number and go, oh, they're still up. Because when the rate of change drops like that, it tells you that prices are actually falling sequentially and pretty rapidly. And so then we ask that same question in a different form where we say, all right, on a monthly basis, 
what percentage of builders are having to cut prices. And it was, I think 60, I think it was like 68% of builders in October said, yeah, we had to cut prices on a month over month basis. And when you, so I have two questions. One is when you ask these types of questions to the builders, are you getting, are you like going to the CFO and like getting real numbers or are you going to, to somebody who's like, yeah, we had to cut prices or no, we're fine. Like how is, how do you. It's yeah. So these are relationships that are like a labor of love is what I would say. And so there's, we've got a great survey team The our builder survey team is run by Jody Kahn, who's been in the industry for many decades knows the builders that are answering these questions like they're her, her friends. Yep. Devin Bachman is another one that participates in that survey. And so, and these are the people that are answering the questions for a smaller builder, it could go up to that level in terms of season, but these are generally division presidents, regional presidents. So they're people that know what the heck's going on in their business. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And then my, my, my next question is, okay, so we know that, you know, you have some orders, but 45% of them are canceling in Phoenix and Vegas. And we know that traffic is down and we know that pricing is down. We also know that those builders are coming off, you know, mega years. And so in 2006, seven, eight, we had builders who were stuck with too much land inventory and they were, and they got upside down and they had to liquidate and they basically created the whole invitation homes like that these entire industries of wall street would picked up thousands of homes because the builders were so screwed they got behind and they had to liquidate quickly yep what does it look like for 2023 yeah so there's some interesting things today versus prior cycle that you're talking about from just a builder standpoint and a balance sheet and how they've positioned themselves I think one of the big lessons learned there was as the market starts to pivot and you can kind of see the writing on the wall, try to de-risk as much as you can, because a lot of builders did not do that in 06, 07, and we saw what happened. And so one of the ways that that they've de-risked this cycle in a way, and I'm not saying there's no risk because clearly there is, is in terms of like the process for buying land. So rather than going out and buying it and controlling it on your own and you're on your own balance sheet a lot of builders this cycle have pivoted to well hey let's option more of this and it, it goes back to my comment on structuring optionality in your life makes sense to do it in your business and so what you're seeing right now is a lot of builders are walking away from the options that they've engaged that they've entered into for thousands of lots i mean thousands this and this is this public information if you just read what the builders are telling you on their earnings calls, they're walking away because it it makes sense. And while it's a small, well, I say small, it's a financial hit, but it's not as big of a hit if they were to have bought that land completely on their own and been controlling it, because then you're stuck with it. You build through it, you're going to have to impair it because you're not going to make what you thought you were going to make. In a, in a, basically, you bought it in a 3% mortgage rate backdrop and then you're having to monetize that land into a 7% mortgage rate backdrop. So that doesn't work. It just doesn't work. So that's what's happening with a lot of builders right now. And I think what is going to happen, this, it's in our forecast, you're going to see a really sharp, sudden pullback in, in pretty much everything. And I think builders realize we got to clear the decks right now. 
there's a lot of like picking the Python analogy. There's a lot of stuff coming to market. And if we've already poured the slab on it in our vertical, we're not going to stop. That's going to come. But if we can get in front of anything that isn't yet at that stage, and we can dial back our land buying, we can walk away from land options because I think what they're kind of seeing is let's clear the deck, drop supply as much as we can. Let's get to 2023 and prices will have come down by that time. It, I think it's clearly in our forecast and I think it's in a lot of other people's forecasts too. And th this is a really critical part of it too. Not only will home prices have come down, but there's a lag on the construction cost side. So they need the input cost side of it to come down too, because until that happens, you can't really model your business. And so I think that is really the, this, this kind of air pocket that we're in right now, but we get out to 2023, all the trades see it happening right now. Every builder's going to their trade base and saying, Hey, the market is not what it was six months ago. And I think everyone across housing that participates realizes that, okay, it's, we're going to have to come to the table here and figure out how we can all have a business. We're not going to have a business at the margins that we had in 2020, 2021, but we, you know, they're going to be materially lower, but we're still going to have a business. And so I think that is the conversations kind of price discovery conversation that's happening right now. That's okay. That's a lot of information. So one of the things that brings up is that we have record numbers of homes under, and that was because of obviously pandemic demand, but also the supply chain delays. And those are now starting to get finished. Yep. And so are there some in that, I don't really know how they calculate under construction, but are there some in that under construction that are like, you know, not slabs poured that they can walk away or are those further along that those all got to come to market? Authorized, but not started would be the component that is, hasn't hit the, because, you know, typically the trigger for a start is when the foundation has been poured. And so if it's authorized, but not started in a way you can try to mothball that, slow it down and maybe wait until you get out into 2023 and the market's kind of reset, maybe, hopefully, maybe rates have even come down and then you go back at it. But beyond that, if it's beyond that stage, you kind of got to ride that wave is how I think uh, the system's going to work right now. And it brings up an interesting conversation too, that maybe we might get into on the home price side, because you mentioned that wave of supply and we don't have a lot of supply on the resale side right now, yet home prices are falling really fast. And so what is factoring into this is if you look at the percentage of total for sale inventory out in the market right now. So the denominator there would be what do builders have? What's in the resale market? Historically, builders account for, I think it's like 13% of that. That's the historical average going back 30, 40 years. Today, it's right around 30%. So I hadn't thought we, about we know what builders, they meet the market. They're gonna do what they have to do on price to sell these homes versus a, a resale owner it's a much different psychological process for the most part. And that's a lot, that's a big reason why home prices are, are historically sticky to the downside. But if you have the price setters right now and a higher percentage of them waiting wise is coming from home builders, if it's coming from iBuyers, we all know that's happening right now. If it's coming from fix and flip investors that have busted flips and we track overall investor sales really closely across the country. And so I think what's really important right now 
and it fed into our view on, hey, the price correction is going to happen faster than probably what you were expecting, is who are the sellers? That's kind of like the billion dollar question right now to dig in on and figure out, okay, in this market, what percentage of sellers are those different categories that we just talked about? Because if it's 30, 40%, 50% of those groups and the emotional hangup of selling a home and cutting prices isn't there, prices are going to move faster. I mean, that's what we're seeing right now. There's a chart that, that I did in, a, we do this client webinar every month. And one of the charts that really stood out to me, and it supported our view on prices coming down faster and the magnitude being probably worse. If you look at the month over month rate of change on home prices, and this is our national index, and we track it across the country. You go back to 08 and you had to wait until almost the Lehman moment. It was summer 08 when home prices were falling at a 1% monthly clip. So it took a good year and a half of kind of subprime and the slowdown to get to that rate of change. We've seen home prices nationally falling 1% month over month, August, September, and then we just got our October data. So we're already there. So it's happening pretty quickly. Yeah. Wow. So, so much to hit. So first of all, let me follow that up with the question of of that record number in construction right now, right? We have a, a, that record number that are, are under construction. Does that mean you, and so how much should I worry about that in, in terms of exacerbating our crisis, well, our I, new I, challenge, our new crisis? <laughs> I think how it, I think the worry manifests in home price declines and, and it happens right now and it happens into next year because it all feeds off of our conversation where builders are slowing down construction because they know supply is coming they don't want to start anything right now that they don't have to let's get to 2023 hope for a lower rate environment hope for costs coming down and then we'll kind of come back into the market but in between prices are going to fall on the stuff that they do have to move and that's kind of the shock to the system right now that I mean, we got pretty negative on home prices. I would say back in April of May is where we, that's where we went through, took a big swing in our forecast and said, okay, wait a second. Rates are moving a lot faster than what anyone anticipated. We were expecting a moderation from the nuttiness of 2021, but not what is actually happening right now. And so I remember in May, we, that's where we came out with our view. And this is when mortgage rates had just touched 5%. Yeah. And we said, we now think peak to trough, home prices nationally are gonna fall. I think it was like 10 to 12% through 2024. And I remember at the time when we came out with that view, we also made a recession call, which was super non-consensus then. I think now it's becoming more consensus. And clients, I mean, it was like immediate, how can this happen? How could home price, how can home prices fall? And so for you and I, we've been in the industry since last time around and we're like, well, it happens. And so th that was in May. Then you go to October and I did the same webinar a few weeks ago for our clients and it was, our forecast went materially lower and it was walking them through a lot of the things that you and I are talking about right now. And so when we roll it all up, we think, Again, our view is, and this is now with 7% mortgage rates and core assumption in here is that mortgage rates stay rel relatively close to about 6% through next year. So that's a foundational assumption. We think that home prices nationally will correct 
to late 2020 levels by the time we get to 2024. And so when you unveil- so that's 30% or something? Well, it's not 30, it's not 30%. Okay. Um, so, but when you unpack that, it's, uh, and again, the lens on it is important too, because home prices nationally went up 40% spring of 20 to spring of 2022. It's like unprecedented home price appreciation. So we, we squeezed a decade of home price appreciation into two years. And so now with 7% rates, the demand destruction that we're seeing across the market, and I think how quickly people are going to try to move stuff are it's it was 40% up spring of 20 to spring of 2022. And the downside will be right around 20, 22% is our expectation. 22. So, you know, and this was an assumption. So you, I do remember you guys making that call very early that, that we're going to have home prices down. And Not early right, enough. Wasn't that, early well, enough. there you go. And so for me, the blind spot that I had and still have is that I don't have any capacity to predict where rates are going to go. And so, you know, we, when we started the year at three, I could see four and a half, I could see five. I could imagine that. I couldn't imagine seven and seven and a quarter. It was, and so, you know, and we can see, I could watch in the data at when rates in August fell back under five and a half towards like five, we could see people Traction. buying, we could yeah. see inventory declining. And then September one rates jumped again from five to six to seven. And that's when the brakes had on. And that's when I was like, I didn't see like have seven. In fact, there have been, there are a lot of people who've like been calling a housing bubble for a decade. And I hadn't even heard any of them that said, 7% interest rates are going to be the factor. They said, well, we're going to have a big recession and people borrow too much money or whatever, but nobody said 7% interest. Like, no, I, you know, that would have been nuts. And that would have been the real call. So, so you made the call when rates were about five, five to six in that time. And, you know, earlier in the year when they went from five and a half to six, it slowed and then they drifted back down and things picked up a little bit again. And yep. we could see it week to week. And so, so, so now I have you're... on your seven, no one predicted it's 7% yeah. rates I, in every conversation I have with clients, as we're talking through these sim similar items, I always ask them, do you know anyone that was forecasting six, 7% mortgage rates? Because if you do, I would love to talk to them. Yeah. And nobody has said, oh yeah, it was this person. Yeah. Go talk. I mean, no one knows of anybody. So I think we all miss that. And I think 2022 has been, I mean, kind of rewind the clock and things that happened. I mean, we, we really started to see, if you just look at 10-year treasury rates, when Russia invaded Ukraine end of February, it was kind of this an, another, okay, gasoline on the fire of inflation. You saw 10-year rates start to come up. It also synced up too, and this is where I think where what we missed, and I think a lot of people missed too, the significance of what the pivot from quantitative easing to quantitative tightening was going to do to not only the treasury market, but the mortgage-backed security space. Because I think we all kind of knew, all right, Fed's going to hike short-term rates. That's baked in. It's going to happen. But we were kind of in uncharted territory in terms of now Fed stepping back with QT. And that synced up right around spring, summer which is when mortgage rates started to blow out. And we track this, and if you look at it, you can see it crystal clear. There's a direct correlation between the Fed backing up the truck, loading up on 10-year treasuries, 
And then when it kind of crests and starts to flatten out, they're still buying there, but not as much. It syncs up almost perfectly with when mortgage rates started to really blow out. And then the second part of that too, and perhaps even more important, is their activity in the mortgage-backed security space. Same exact story. You can see it. Fed backs up the truck, spring of 20, loading up on MBS, trying to save the day. And then they start to slow that down. And then it stops in September. And you can go to the New York Fed's website and it says no, no further plan for now. Purchase activity. When did rates blow out? It was August, September. And so you kind of go through that exercise. And it also for us gave us some confidence in saying, look, this is probably going to last a little bit longer. We got to go down on our forecast because there's these structural drivers of why mortgage rates are doing what they're doing. And we can't really get some conviction around, around another pivot back to QE that would come in and reverse that. And so, cause I mean, look what the Fed's having to fight. They're having to fight inflation. So they can't move back to QE. So th those were things that I think none of us really knew what would be the impact on mortgage rates. And there's the, the spread between 30-year fixed rate mortgage and 10-year treasury. That's, that is really kind of the benchmark for how we think about mortgage rates. So historically, it's 170 basis points, going back to like 60s, 70s, 300 plus basis points right now. And I was talking to a client of ours about this. And I said, this is probably the most important chart of the thousands of charts that we publish every month. And he said, where the spread is right now, it's a three standard deviation event. And I said, okay, well, what does that mean? What does that mean for humans to, to think about that? And he said, well, what it means is 99% of the time, all past instances of this data point, the spread's been lower. So it kind of tells you like we're in this world that we haven't really had to experience. And we kind of always, it, we were, it was always going to be a bit of wild times when the Fed finally started to say, hey, no more QE, let's go to QT. And now we're all witnessing what that looks like. Yeah, there's a really great Odd Lots podcast with Joe Weisenthal oh, and, Joe's, and Tracy Alloway yeah. on uh, Bloomberg Odd Lots that, uh, about that mortgage market and the parts that are broken and why the spread is so big right now. It's really great. A couple of weeks ago, super, super cool. Okay, so here's a question. You had obviously some calls that were, were early and strong. Like I don't make things, we don't do things like recession calls. So I uh, wish we didn't have to either. It's yeah. <laughs> like, all I do is I go, man, this is how many houses there are. And here's where they're priced. Like this yeah. is the, we're, we're going to give you the data, but uh, were there things, you know, in January or something calls that you made that you've got wrong recently? Oh, absolutely. What did you get wrong? We got the inflection in home prices wrong. We were forecasting that the rate of growth would moderate. We were not forecasting that home prices were going to flatten and or fall this year. That's in our forecast now. I think we've got home prices and we forecast December, December. So when I tell you what our 2022 forecast is, it's December 21 versus December 22. We've got home prices nationally down 1% on the resale side. And finishing year, this year down 1%. Yep. Worse than that on the new home side. And it goes back to the conversation on builders. Just what do we got to, what, what price do we have to hit? Let's hit it. Let's move it. We're going to sell this. Yeah, um, yeah. And so, oh yeah, totally missed that. The, there was a piece that I remember writing back in, it's almost a year to the date, November of last year called Bubblicious. I don't know if you saw that piece, but that was kind of me. You know, it's going out on a whim and saying, look, 
none of this makes sense right now and namely on crypto and i mean gosh look at today what's going on but it was also a hey when you have rates this low for this long and the stimulus that got thrown on everything weird stuff happens and asset prices just explode everywhere and so rational brain don't assume that in perpetuity and so it you know we started communicating how we do have the growth coming down considerably next year next year being 2022 but again i think the rate of change on how quickly things slowed given what rates did totally missed that yeah yeah that's it's a fascinating space being at heaven to put a stake in the ground for the future Yes. And man, people challenge you when like when we made that recession call. Whew, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And still, because you sure. know, clearly we're not in a recession right now. But I think if you study history and you study cycles, Fed moves on rates, recession doesn't hit tomorrow. It, I mean, it takes there is a big lag there and it takes time. And but eventually especially if rates need to keep going up, up and stay elevated. Those higher rates, I mean, they permeate the cracks of every asset across the economy. And we're, I mean, you're seeing that right now, housing, tech, especially. Yeah, yeah, for, we see it every day in San Francisco. Okay, so, so next question is, are there underappreciated data points, leading wow. indicators that, that you like, that, we, that don't get enough play in the headlines? Like you guys do some surveys, which are yep. great, right? That's original data by coming up with those. Are there signals in there? You talked about, for example, the language they use in your surveys. Yes. Tell me about how you parse that. So that's. And do you yes. trust them? Like, like you go like, oh, you know, like they always have an optimistic bias. And then they're or like, is it a pro-cyclical bias? So like, tell me about it. it. It depends on the constituents that are participating in the survey. So the skew towards bi positive bias, I would say the resale agents we survey, that's yeah. true. Yeah. But at the same time, I'll tell you, they also got negative fairly early in the survey we do. We survey a thousand plus resale agents every single month. The builders, I think, and this goes back to the builders meeting the market on price. They know what they have to do when the market pulls back. So I think the commentary we get there is probably more candid and honest. I love, well, I told you one of my favorite directional signals is kind of a wisdom of the crowds exercise on my inbox. Like what are all these different clients asking me about? I was like, okay, that's a good signal. That's one of them. Another one of them is I personally love almost to an obsession reading through earnings calls across all types of different sectors, because you never know. It's almost like, like I wake up and like, okay, I'm going to go on a treasure hunt. What am I going to find today? And when it's earnings season, there's a lot of treasure out there to find. So I, I love that. But what beyond reading the calls, sometimes I think it's re even more important to, and I've suggested this to some of my, my, our analysts, when the market's at an inflection point, or you think it's at an inflection point, listen to the call. Because when you listen to the audio of the call, you can pick up nuance in everything, namely in voice inflection, patience or lack of. And you can tell that as people are going through questions. And so in good times, you know, the boisterous and rosy, but as the market's starting to shift, the patience goes away and it's next question. Okay, let me go to the next question. And so, I mean, those are very little things that 
you kind of start taking notes. You're like, okay, wow, this person sounds very different right now. That um, would be so an amazing thing to to automate or to least instrument measure over time. My, I don't know if you know, Paul Kodrowski is a, he's a venture capitalist and analyst is big Twitter following. And he has an automated comp earnings call script processor where he looks for F-bomb. And so he can track profanity in yeah. the earnings calls as like, I think he mostly does it because it, there's a, it turns into a, there's a story there and there's more interesting story there, but like, that's a, that would be a fascinating thing to process. And I add a lot. I would love that. Right? Yeah. yeah. But it's true. It's like, you know, information is everywhere. There's information when, and when people don't want to answer a question, there's information in the way they answer the question, how they're moving, what they're saying, the inflection. So these are all things that I love just trying to figure out. I'm like, okay, now I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to triangulate a view now based off of all these different things. Like to me, that's a fun, fun exercise. And then in this earnings call season, is there, has there been signal in any of that is different or maybe adds to your yes. output? Yeah, I would say it's giving us more conviction in that on the cost side, I think things are gonna come in pretty quickly here because it's not only on the builder side, it's on the apartment multifamily side where, and this goes back to my comment on higher rates permeate through all asset classes, all industries, residential real estate is case in point there. Multifamily is have, it, it, there's been a huge ramp in construction. They have a lot of supply coming. Now the market's shifting. And so things are going to pull back really fast there from what people are saying right now heading into next year. So if you've got multifamily pulling back quickly, you got single family pulling back quickly, and then you think about the rest of the world, which we haven't even talked about. I mean, the entire developed world had a housing bubble. You could probably say that, I think, now in, in hindsight. Now it's going to flip to the other side. And then you also have China, too, which is basically slowing down still. So if you kind of work through that thought exercise and go, okay, if most of the world is pulling back really quickly on the construction side, input costs should get better faster. So that that's one. My favorite, there was, there was always like a favorite zinger, I think, in earnings as I'm going through. And so I love it where I'm reading through, and it's usually really early, early in the morning because earnings season, I'll rotate. Like, like Usually I try to do a physical book in the morning, but in earnings season, I'll just like, all right, transcripts. I'm just going to read through transcripts. And so I'm re it's early morning. I'm reading through this apartment read earnings call, and I won't mention who it, who it was, but the CEO says, and I'm always looking for read-throughs into other sectors, namely for sale. And he says, you know, I'm on the board of the largest private home builder in the country. And our sales are down 50% since June. And they're not coming, and they're not coming back. I'm reading through this. I'm like, I can't believe that you just said that. Like, like, like for me, that, that so that's the kind of stuff that when I uncover it, it's it I love that process. That was real. I saw you tweet that out. That was that, <laughs> that's really remarkable. Yeah, those are real signals. That's that, that's that's super exciting. So it actually brings up another point. We have real geographic differences going on in the country. And if especially new construction is driving this down correction, more prices hitting deeper on new construction, inventory supply coming harder on new construction, like the new build is leading the the burst of this bubble. Does that like does that mean that Cleveland is spared? 
compared to Austin? I was, uh, let me, and let me just finish with a little anecdote. I was in Nashville a couple of weeks ago and Nashville has three dozen high rise cranes in the sky. It looks like Miami in the early nineties. It's yep. nuts. And it's super exciting, right? Town is growing. It is, it's, you know, it's flashy and new and like, it's really neat, but you know, who's going to buy a million and a half dollar condo in Nashville at 7%. What happens with all, or we stayed in an Airbnb and it was a, you know, an entire neighborhood and you could tell they were all Airbnbs because they all had the $30 Costco Nashville sign on the side of the house and like the whole neighborhood, you know, build the short-term rent. Those, so, so, so the question is about geography. Like do the, these are also the same markets where the iBuyers are focused and where the investor dollars are focused. What does, do the other markets escape that? Escape this time? Well, I don't think any market will escape a price correction, but I think for on like a relative basis, because I mean, we do these forecasts market by market and you can, we have a couple of heat maps that show this where you can see the run up every metro from spring 20 to, to call it spring 2022, which was the peak for a lot of markets. And even in markets that were kind of on their back, like San Francisco, Home prices were up 20%, I think was the stat we had during that time period. And then you kind of go across the Midwest, Northeast. You had solid home price appreciation, but it wasn't the 60, 70, 80% that you saw in South Florida, in Austin, in the Southwest, in Boise. And so I think on a relative basis, we have the Midwest, Northeast weathering this better, but every market has to have some sort of a correction when the purchasing power impact that we've seen when rates go from sub three to seven happens so quickly it has to happen and it's it, it brings up an interesting thing too because when like when i think about cycles all right what's the same what's different is always a thought exercise i like to go through and one of the things that is different this time around as it relates to affordability is if you think about post dodd frank so dodd frank 2010, a lot of rules came into place to try to prevent things like massive ways of foreclosures and payment shock. And one of those was around adjustable rate mortgages. And it became much, much more difficult to qualify for an ARM. Namely, if you're doing a 5-1 ARM, you got to now qualify at the reset rate. So ARMs have almost become more of a product for the affluent. And you can see this, just look at the median mortgage on an ARM versus a GSE loan. It's massive, massively different. So go back to the mid nineties and every affordability squeeze cycle that we've seen, arms were 30, 35% of all mortgages in those time periods. And so arms in, in my mind are kind of like this white knight that have always come in and saved the day for some people that still want to get in, will take that rate risk, but you're not seeing that now. I know arms have come up a little bit, but there's still not even half of what we saw. So. So the lack of arms is actually a negative in this cycle. So this, it's, it is a, it's a thesis that I think is something that we've worked in because that's the opposite direction where I thought you were going. So that's really interesting. Well, so, so that's, so there was a piece. So there was a piece that I wrote back in September that fortune featured was, which was about this, where I think the knee jerk response from people is, oh, no arms, no distressed supply. Totally true. Not none, but you probably will have less. But then flip that on its head and go, okay, well, you're probably not going to have as many buyers either. So 
you don't have as many tools in the toolbox for buyers, you can't assume the same number of transactions that are going to happen in a rising rate environment. And I do think that there's some validity to that. And we're seeing that right now. That's fascinating. I didn't, I, like I was going the other direction with it. I was going fewer arms, therefore fewer you know, affordability resets and fewer distressed supply. But it actually, because arms are harder to get, therefore they are less likely to help us get out of this downturn as well. Yeah. And I, I think you can flip the lock-in effect too on its head. That was also part of the piece. Yeah. Because if you have, and it goes back to my earlier comments on probably the most important thing to identify right now is, well, who are the sellers? We know that average homeowner that locked in, and that's 85% of existing mortgages are sub, I think it's like sub five is the stat. They're not selling right now. So if they're not selling, who is the marginal seller? It is a marginal seller that has to sell, fix and flip, investors, iBuyers, builders. And so you think about that and it's like, okay, you now you just flipped the arm narrative on its head. You flip the lock-in narrative on its head. And so that, and that the dynamics of housing right now are that prices are falling pretty quickly. Yeah, that's really interesting. I love that. Let's talk investors for a second. There are a couple of things. One that, that you and I have talked about in the past that is, I think, important for our audience to hear and hear again. And that is the percentage, like how impactful is are the Wall Street, the big Wall Street money, you know, and compared to individual investors. And, you know, right, the headlines are big Wall Street investors buying everything. Yep. And so, so talk to us about what you know about that and then the implications for where they are and what that means for 2023. Yeah, and so there's a variety of ways to unpack that. I think what we've seen is, and when you label Wall Street, the majority of the activity there has been on the rental side. It's been buying homes to rent them out. And so one of the ways that we can kind of proxy for that is, okay, well, of the single family rental ownership in metros across the country, how much of it is a mom and pop? How much of it is an institution? And the threshold we use for an institution is I believe they've got to own 100 plus homes in aggregate across the country. And there's only, I think, one market in Charlotte, I believe, 99% sure there at Charlotte, where institutions are more than mom and pop. This is specifically around, around single family rental ownership. Every other market across the country, it is mom and pop that really dominate this. And so I, I think our view on the narrative of, oh, Wall Street is destroying housing, it's an easy, it's an easy narrative. But then when you kind of dig in the data, you're like, well, it's not really true for most markets. So that's kind of where we are on that. I think when we say investors, it's kind of an overarching umbrella of fix and flip, rental investors, buyers. And then we also will lump in there uh, because the litmus test that we've used on this, although we're starting to maybe change the methodology around it, has been property tax records go to a different address than the home in question. And so you will get some second home vacation in there. And so there was kind of some pushback from people like, well, that's not an investment property. But then I said, okay, well, do you think that buyer buys that property when rates go up, market slows down, stock market goes down? The perception when they buy that property is more of a, it, it is an investment property. And, and so that's why we include it there. And it's like, oh, by the way, second home vacation market. I think we, we track weekly loan lock data on, on this. 
it's down for purchases down like 70% year over year. It's the worst of all segments right now. So that tells me it probably makes sense to think of that as kind of a investor component as we go through that exercise. Yeah. So then as we look forward, there are, I have two competing hypotheses about investors in the next year. And I'm interested in your take on which one wins. The hypothesis one is that investors are, they have to pull back. They pull their demand out of the market that exacerbates the downturn, especially in the Texas and the Phoenix and all those places. Yep. And hypothesis two is that there's a lot of cash in the world still. And a lot of investors with a lot of cash. I was talking with a friend recently who got a million bucks in stimulus, you know, for with his company. And there he's doing hard money loans to, you know, people doing real estate because, you know, you borrow it three and you lend it 12, right? Like it's, it is. And so, and like, so th that there's a lot easy. So, so the high, yeah, exactly. Turns out not for me. That's not. <laughs> no, I, I have no interest in doing anything like that. Yeah. That's right. But but so that so there's two right. So in that sense, there's a lot of money who's been waiting a long time for good opportunities to buy houses. And so that so one one says investors pull back, prices prices and transactions de decline accelerates. One is investors choose to go for the opportunities as soon as they pick up. Therefore, the arbitrage disappears quickly. Investors keep a floor on price correction. Where do you see it playing out? I I think it's more of the latter. And I think this also kind of put, to, to put a bow on our whole conversation where the, I think what the conclusions from this conversation are that the price correction will probably happen and it is happening faster than what we all anticipated in a way. But at the same time, yes, that is going to happen. But the industry of single family rental and build to rent, I mean, that really got started during 08, 09, and 10. And it was a wild west. They were figuring it out, cashier's checks in a bag at bank steps. It's now an established, massive, global industry. And so our view, and you're already seeing this with some of the larger groups that are out there and kind of rumored to be raising JV funds because they realize there has not been an opportunity to buy homes at decent yields for, I mean, you got to go back to like 2010s. You're talking a decade plus. And I think that money is in it for the long haul. And so that, you know, they can ride this out. And I do think that right, right now, there's not a lot of it happening because this is really peak price discovery time. And I think the capitulation on price hasn't happened to the extent that we all know and feel it's going to happen. But I do think that they're going to be coming in and buying once home prices come down 15%, 20%. And there are a lot of builders already, and they're saying this publicly that, yeah, peak to now, we're down high teens in a lot of markets. So, I mean, and that's happened in three months, four months. So I do think that your thesis does have merit to it, that those groups are going to come in, they've got mandates to grow and, you know, hopefully knock on wood, they will come in and put a floor into this. And it's funny you bring that up too, because I haven't thought about this in a while, but those groups were, have continued to be, you know, clients of ours going back to 08 and 9 and 10. And I remember at that time, them coming come to us and say, hey, we know you guys know housing. We want to do this now. How can you help us? Can you help us figure it out? 
And when we started to see five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten big groups starting to come in and concentrate in certain markets, for us, that was a signal, going back to the kind of things that we pick up, a signal to say, hey, home prices are going to have a floor here because there's now money coming in pretty quickly. So that's definitely something we're watching for. Yeah, and you could really see recovery in Phoenix, for example, where you could see it 18 months before you saw it in, for example, New Jersey. And I think I I attributed that often to, at that time, the judicial versus non-judicial foreclosure states. Like if it's 90 days and you sell the house, like those markets recovered much more quickly. I haven't thought about that in so long, Mike, the judicial, non-judicial. You're you're like bringing back, you're triggering me back to those times. Yeah, because that's stuff that we haven't really had to think about. We haven't think, and it's really wild because like we're having this correction. And meanwhile, nobody's, there's no short sales in the country because nobody's short on their house almost nobody. There's probably a few people in Boise, but even those folks still have 3% mortgages. And so they, they bought a payment that they could afford. And so even if they're upside down, even if they're, they've now lost, you know, that premium, that overbid premium they paid, they're still, you know, they're still not upside down on that. They're still, you know, have cheap payments that they can afford forever. Possibly. Yep. Well, um, you, so. you bring up something that I think it's kind of brushed under the rug in all of this conversation on foreclosures, evictions. When you really take a step back and you think about 2020 to kind of peak nuttiness earlier this year, you had a once in a lifetime demand stimulus thrown on the housing market with crazy low rates, COVID, work from home, go work anywhere, go buy a home anywhere. So that was on the for sale side, migration on steroids, you had a very similar thing on the rental side too. So we had these once in a lifetime demand stimulus, but at the same time, you had once in a lifetime supply suppression where no foreclosures, no evictions. I mean, in California, which you know both of us call home, I believe it won't be until January or February next year where they will start to allow rental evictions and start going through that process. And so... If you have those two things combined structurally, crazy demand stimulus, but you don't allow the market clearing process to happen like it usually does, lo and behold, you get rental rates going through the roof. You get home prices going through the roof. And now all that stuff, it was like record everything. Now we're normalizing down, probably overcorrecting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, so much. We powered through an hour really quickly. So much to hit. Any big calls you want to leave us with beyond 2024? What do you think? What do you think at mid part of the decade? Please don't ask me that question. <laughs> <laughs> you want know to put a stick in a, a stake in the ground now? Yeah, um, it's. I mean, honestly, r- right now, it's hard forecasting three months from now. Yeah, that's kind of the backdrop we're in. So, people that have to forecast five, ten years out, oh my gosh, I'd feel for you. Right. Right. Okay. Well, that's a great place to end it. Rick, thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. So, everybody, this is the Top of Mind podcast. I'm Mike Simonson from Altos Research. And you know, we do the market data. And if you're sitting here listening to the conversation and saying, gee, I wonder what's happening in my local market and how we explain that to my clients, my buyers and sellers, or anybody who's participating in the market right now, that's why you go to altosresearch.com, book a free consult with our team. And we can talk to you about how we use, you can use market data in your business. You can also reach Rick at John Burns Real Estate Consulting 
And Rick, where else should they follow you? Twitter, you post, you do LinkedIn stuff. Where should we reach? We, yeah, so we've got people, we've got a, a master account for the firm. You can follow me on Twitter. We've got a lot of other great people posting content. So seek us out. If you email me or message me, I'll, I can point you in the right direction. Yeah, that's great. And there's so much valuable insight coming out of Rick and John Burns all the time. So really terrific stuff. Rick, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Mike. It's great. Thanks for listening to Top of Mind. See you again next time and be sure to click subscribe to get future episodes.